ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Financial Mentor with David Boyer. G'day everyone, welcome to The Financial Mentor. On this week's show, we're talking about funding your growth. We're going to hear from an amazing business called Binion. Binion is a company that specialises in 3D rendering. We're going to sit with its founder, Andrei Dolnikov, who told me how hard it is to make something as simple as a leaf look on a 3D rendered image and how our human brain is trained to detect even the slightest anomaly from what could look fake. Andre's business grew really, really rapidly, had to shrink back a little bit, had to rely on banks and also had to rely on his own self-funding. It's a great story and I hope you enjoy it. We're going to hear from Trezantec, a company who went global and helps businesses thrive in uncertainty. And in between all of that, I chat with the Director of Customer Relationships at Australia's newest bank, Judo Bank. Frank Versace will tell us about how banks have failed business owners in their ability to get capital to grow and what Judo is doing differently to make sure your business gets the cash it needs. I'm David Boyer. This is The Financial Mentor. Let's get into it. I'm joined here with Andrei Dolnikov, who's the founder and CEO of Binyan Studio, who does super cool artsy architecture. It's amazing. Andre, you're going to explain it better than me. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here. What, what, is, what is this place? What, what gets done here? I'm sitting in like a loft on Trendy Chapel Street in Melbourne and within the loft you've built a mezzanine for yourself to make it even cooler. So we're looking down on, what, about 40, 50 staff down there? Yes. What happens here? Well, um, Binyan are a architectural 3D rendering and animation studio. Essentially, our, the core of what we do is creating photorealistic imagery, film, virtual reality, immersive experiences, etc., of unbuilt architecture. So let's say you're a property developer that wants to show to your future buyers of your apartments or tenants of your commercial space, etc., what your dreamt up building will look like, but all you have is dry floor plans and sections and elevations and what these call called blueprint. We take that 2D data, those plans, and turn it into photoreal 3D imagery that literally looks lifelike, like it's already there, and then create all sorts of experiences around how your audience will connect to your product. I wish I had a way to make financial data look the way you elevate architectural blueprint drawings because we were looking downstairs at something and I felt amazing looking at this picture. Nobody feels amazing about financial numbers. That's true, David. Thank you. I'm sorry to hear I that. I chose the wrong profession. Huh? <laughs> For you, it's perfect. But we're going to talk about it in a moment because numbers become quite important in your story and your business. Sure do. Why did you start this? I don't have a garage story, but I have a living room story on the floor. I started this very sort of so to speak, by chance. I studied architecture, interior architecture at University of New South Wales, was working actually in Pittsburgh at the time at a couple of architecture firms doing some 3D renderings, as another way they're called, especially in America, uh, for some clients. That client asked me to do some work on the side, which my boss at the time was cool with. After that, that led to a little bit more work. And then when I eventually relocated my family back to Australia to finish my education, actually, 
I was already, I already had a few clients that was working with. When I graduated, I, I thought to myself, do I just go become an entry-level architect or do I try to make a go of this for a couple more years? That went well and then I realized, okay, this section is what I'm going to focus on. So it wasn't like a big epiphany. It was a gradual kind of survival instinct kind of thing. You know, I'm a first-generation Russian Jewish immigrant with no business background, no money background, no anything background, but a uh, survival instinct and a nothing to lose kind of attitude. And at that time, already two kids to feed and a wife at the ripe old age of 24. So I just needed to make it work and needed to hustle. And this is where I found both an expression for what I had studied at university in terms of architecture, 3D design and so forth, and my uh, kind of determined, driven nature. It's, I mean, I think a lot of people can relate to that why did I start not just go and get a job story. In the early days, what was more important? I mean, clearly you, you have a knack for going out and winning work or, or it just comes to you. But the work that you do, because it's artistic within the realms of a corporate need, how do you balance that go out and get a sale with, but my work has to be unbelievably high quality because it's on show. It's, its job is to be on show and to entice people to part with, you deal with very luxury developments, millions and millions of dollars. Look, it's not really a balance. It's, it's really integrated. If our work is not really good, we don't get the sale and vice versa. If we don't get the sale, we can't hire amazing people to do really great work. We can't you know, do all the things you need to do as a studio to make sure you have a higher level of creative innovation, quality control, and so forth. So for us, it's always been one and the same. And for me personally, that's one of my key values. Like I want to only do awesome stuff, things, work that I'm super proud of. So when I'm, when I'm sitting there showing work to a client, if I don't feel proud of what I'm showing, I'm not going to be very effective as a salesperson. I actually tell people, like, I don't think I'm that good at sales. I couldn't sell anything that I don't love. So a real salesman needs to be able to, mm-hmm. you know, sell snow to the Eskimos. I'm not sure you're allowed to say that still these days, but let's just go with that. I only can sell what I, what I love and deeply connect to and what I feel proud of creating. So it's all one and the same to me. The growth story is pretty remarkable. Uh, you're in three cities now. We are Sydney, Melbourne, a small presence in Brisbane and New York. Can you talk us through the major milestones on that growth story? Your, your business fundamentally cannot grow without employing lots and lots of people. Yeah, I mean, 70 to 80% of our overhead is staff, wages. Um, we have very few external sort of contractors. It's, it's all in-house staff. Part of That's a big part of our brand and point of difference that we, like, we don't outsource. It's all quite closely held internal kind of studio environment under one, two, three, four roofs. So the milestones in the growth were getting to a point where the first group of people that really made it clear to me, wow, we can actually do this stuff at a pretty high level. And at that time, we were sort of me too. You know, there was a couple of market leaders. We thought, can we do it as good as that? And yeah, we, we did. Um, at the time, our pricing was, uh, can we be a bit cheaper because we're much smaller? You know, still stacked up for us, so we would, we would do that. And then it was like, okay, there's a huge demand for our work. Can we hire a few people here in Sydney? We hired the first batch. <laughs> then soon we realised it's just such a scarcity of top-level talent, or that of people that can do the work that we need done. 
we need we realize we've got to look further afield. So that brought in Melbourne and Brisbane. And honestly, the main reason in the beginning was why we opened in Melbourne and Brisbane was to be able to employ some key people we needed to add to our team to be able to grow our grow our capacity and capability. The fact that we could then service clients on location was obviously another benefit, but to be honest, we already had clients in both of those cities that were servicing just from Sydney, but we reached a point where we just couldn't grow couldn't grow more. There wasn't students, uh, there wasn't any graduates with the skills we required. So it was really out of necessity to find the right team. So that was a big milestone, probably about three years in, we said like, that's it. We've tapped out Sydney for, for, for talent that we can find. New York talent-led growth, hundred percent. New York was slightly different. It was more of a market opportunity. We saw a very high-value market, quite underserviced. We felt, and then we went there. We drummed up enough business. I would go every six weeks, about a year and a half for one week, and uh, was able to do that and still come back and not have the locks change in my house, so changed in my house by my darling wife. So that was much more around winning business in a new exciting market where the current, so to speak, market leaders, I think were somewhat complacent at the time, potentially rightfully so, because it had not a lot of competition for many, many years. We came in and we really did well. That was about three years ago. Um, so you expand physical offices, you expand headcount. How fast did that he- headcount expand? Look, I counted from um, our employee and really like, you know, this person's got almost the identity of like one of the founders here now. He's probably actually technically was th- third or fourth employee. Chris, he's just celebrated his seventh Binyan birthday. So Congratulations, Chris. Yes, in April, but close enough. Okay. Belated. I'll get you some flowers. <laughs> um, and um, so that was seven years ago of, I think it was like three of us at the time or something. Then we got within about, probably about a year and a half, we got to like 15. That's <laughs> funny. When I think about it now, I'm like, I get anxious just thinking about it. At the time, it was like, I just actually go. just go. It was, we were riding the wave, baby. So... Then we got to about 15. Then we went to Melbourne and Brisbane within one year. Just a little co-work kind of, they didn't have WeWork then yet, but that type of arrangement spaces. And then we had like two or three people in Melbourne uh, in Melbourne and in Brisbane. Then we really went on a big recruitment drive overseas. Um, UK, Eastern Europe, um, Asia, South America, et cetera. And we sort of hired about 40 people over probably about a two year period. And, um, and then after that, there was kind of another burst a little while later, and then much more gradually over the last few years. Did that answer the question? Well, the, well it does. But the question back at you, Annie, is how do you, I mean, like you said, you're a Russian Jewish immigrant with no business skills. Um, look, you're in your office, in your very fancy, trendy office. This is like uh, high-end design IKEA for us average punters. That's how we <laughs> access design. You've only got one certificate up. I'm sure your business has won many. And it's a certificate <laughs> given to you by your staff, Andre Dolnikov, Certificate of Recognition 2018, Most Improved CEO. I think that's ironic, David, but okay. But how do you learn to manage that many people? Um, that's not an easy thing and I think yeah, a lot of people struggle with it. For sure. It's definitely not easy. I've been extremely you know, blessed to have some key people in the early days that 
the vast majority of whom are still here with the business in much more evolved and, and grown roles that kind of developed our unique kind of fun-loving, hard-working, strive-for-excellence, family-type culture that create a certain energy in the business that does a lot of the, I don't say does it, we still have to work very, very hard to manage it. But first thing, first thing you have to have a culture that is like the canvas on which you do everything else. If you don't have that, you're going to have weird, you know, bad behavior, unmotivated people, et cetera, et cetera. So that kind of happened, I don't know, it just happened um, because we, that's how we were. So that's the kind of place we, we created. I'm not saying it's all roses and sunshine all the time. Of course, we have issues and certain times the culture can, can dip and, there's, you know, stuff happens. But you have that foundation to build upon, then you, you know, then you, you're at a good starting point. Now, actually, management skills, I mean, I've had to learn them. I've had mentors all along. I've had, a, you know, a business coach from day dot and I've, you know, kind of I'm up to my third, actually now I'm kind of in between, but I've had three or four different business coaches and sort of consultants that we work with to make sure we're getting external education. I've done, you know, a management certificate at AIM of make sure all our management team um, have an opportunity to do that. So we've had to learn ourselves, bring people with extra experience along the way and just be comfortable to reinvent yourself all the time and not say, that's just how I do things. And so, sorry, um, you have to kind of actually work on yourself to become a, you know, a better person and better manager and, and, and nothing like experience to get to get. If you're good and then you build on that through experience, you can become, you can become more and more special. Your growth is expensive. You sell a premium product. You have staff who are not cheap uh, because of the skills and talent that they have. Through your growth, you've done it through physical locations. So you've had rents and bonds and staff. And, and throughout all of that, you also had big changes to visa, visa access in Australia. How do you fund this? Well, our funding story really has been a combination of just self-funding because we were able to be profitable from day dot. You know, we're not a tech startup that needs to like sink in tons of money before you see any profits. We're a pretty, um, pretty um, I think we're going to simple. Hear from one of those later in the show. <laughs> Great. Uh, we, we are a pretty simple business in terms of we deliver a product that we usually deliver within weeks and or maybe a couple of months and then we get paid for it. Um, so we always, the cash flow, particularly in the early days, was, was sort of easy. We would just keep reinvesting that into the business. At certain points in time, we needed external funding, be it from banks or sort of like uh, finance companies that do hardware finance or software license finance. There would be sometimes, you know, the three Fs, friends, family, and fools, would dip in and help us with a little bit of did, bridge funding. Did you have to put some of your own money in? Oh, definitely, yeah. Were you a friend, a family, or a fool? <laughs> that we will know that at the end of the story. <laughs> it's not. It, the book hasn't closed yet. Yeah. What is it? If it's, it'll be all good in the end. That if it's not good, it means it's not the end yet. So, yeah, definitely my own money refinancing my house at one point in time. So it's it's depending on the situation, and I think developing a suite of sources for funding and, ca and cash is, is vital, I would say, a bit of advice. So knowing, for, you, you don't go to the same place for different kind of money. 
certain companies are set up to say, okay, hardware finance, that we specialize in that, we're going to help you with that. Software finance, you can work with the software vendors themselves if they believe in you to, to do that. Other times it's just like, okay, I'm going to need to get some money from the bank. Where do I have some equity? Can I leverage that? And um, keeping, you know, making sure that the businesses run well is really fundamental to all that because they do look at you holistically. We did have, uh, you know, the taxation office definitely helps. Sometimes when, you know, you, you have a really great year, make a lot of profit, you don't necessarily need to pay the tax on that right away. So you can, you know, we've had certain periods where we've been able to you know, negotiate very well with the, with the taxation office, which all of those are paid off now, thankfully. But there were periods where that helped. Um, but we were able to, most of the time, foresee those kind of things and plan forward most of the time. And that's the big key, isn't it? Through proact- If you're proactive, you know what's coming, you can have the conversations. What happens on those occasions where, where you didn't know it was gonna, coming and you didn't know it was needed? Well, there's a few points where like, our current um, CFO, who's been with us now for quite a few years, when he came in, that was definitely one of those points where he was like, uh, you've got a problem here. <laughs> you're going to run out of money. And we had to make some reductions in the business at that time and, and making sure that we uh, you know, were able to access some of those, source, some of those sources of funding. Uh, I guess you've got to really know your cash flow all the time so you at least have some sort of line of sight to how much you know, runway you have. You don't want to accidentally crash the bus. If you're going to crash the bus, you want to slow down, get out of the bus and let it drive into the wall. I don't know what that metaphor is uh, for, but uh, you certainly... <laughs> well, you, have, you haven't had to crash the bus. No, yeah, but certainly, some, From that point, you've done yeah, extremely well. Yeah, no, but even if, even if you want to take a step backwards, you want to be doing it from a position of strength, not on a oopsie-daisy or what happened here. So most of the time, and sometimes it is about making difficult decisions, but you do that from a proactive, forward thinking. You're still actually playing offense while playing defense. So is it important to play defense? Is it important to take a step back? If it's the right thing for, for that situation, 100%, or the market. I mean, you know, look at the property market now. It's definitely not the halcyon days of two, three years ago uh, for, for us and for entire, then, you know, you got agents laying off people. You've got architecture firms, huge layoffs, builders, you name it. So everybody's feeling the pinch. Our approach, we, I mean, obviously we're in a cyclical market. So we long, a long time ago, we decided to go international in terms of our client um, client group. So more than half our work currently is work that is not coming from clients in Australia. That's helped us be somewhat immune to the worst of the risks of the dipping market, but not, not entirely. And let's just say that when the market does take a take a turn for the worse, you've got to be able to respond. Can't be stupid and sentimental. The diversification of clients is a defensive... You said it was opportunistic at, the, at when we first started talking about it, but it does build in defensive resilience into your business. Yeah, it, it was opportunistic in the sense that I saw the opportunity there. The idea of going beyond Australia was a, a risk minimization strategy. It was also... It was definitely... Look, on a, on a kind of emotional level, it's the journey. It's the quest. It's the next conquer. It's the next conquering of the next hilltop. You know, that's that's what drives a growth business. That's what I think people find exciting about being part of a business like ours. Like, you're always on a mission. You know, to achieve the next thing, to do the next 
you know, the next venture that no one's ever tried or no one, a company like ours has never achieved this kind of recognition or success or quality or et cetera, et cetera. So that's always a very exciting and galvanizing force that, that gets your team aligned and, and attracts great talent to your company. So that was definitely a big part of it. But in the back of my mind, I'm always knowing that's all, that I, I, I'm always aware of the fact that, hey, this is also a risk, a risk minimization strategy. This is making sure, you know, if all real estate all around the world crashes at once, I mean, we're all, you know, in trouble anyway, so you can't plan for the, 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 the cataclysmic event to too much. But for the normal ups and downs of our industry, which is embedded into the property market, you can do that to um, help you be a little bit more immune. Andre, I want to um, thank you very much for your time and coming on the show. There's a lot of people listening who would love to grow their business to the size and scale that you have. Do you have any tips? First, make sure you really want to do it. I don't think it's for everybody. You've got to have a lot of resilience and you've got to really understand what you're getting in for. I actually wrote an article on an industry blog about the pros of and cons of every different stage of growth. I think you need to really understand what you're going to sacrifice by going from the size you are now to the next. You're going to win some and you're going to lose some. And each at each level, make sure you really know what you're getting yourself in for and grow with, I think one of the key things is grow on the basis of a fantastic product or service. Don't do it just because you can close a sale. Make sure your reality, your actual thing that you deliver is at a super high level. Because if you try to grow and that's not there, you're going to fall on your face and it'll be hard to recover. Andre, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thanks, David. Joining us now on The Financial Mentor is Frank Versace. Frank is the Director of uh, Clients and Partners at a new Australian bank called Judo Bank, formerly Judo Capital. Frank, thanks for joining us. Thanks, David. Great to be here. So let's just get started a little bit on what a new bank is. What's Judo Capital? So Judo, we're the, we're the newest kid on the banking block, I suppose. So APRA's just issued us our banking license. We were in the market prior to that as a a dedicated SME lender. We're now a dedicated SME bank. And I suppose our whole mantra is that we're purpose-built for um, for SMEs looking to reintroduce the empowered relationship manager who can deal with customer requests um, through the application of common sense rather than the application of policy, I suppose, is, is the nutshell. So would it be fair to say, you know, those of us who have gone to banks and we get the computer says no or the checklist wasn't filled out properly, we shouldn't be having that experience with you? Spot on. I think. I think from a banker's perspective, that was just as frustrating for us. The, the, you know, the guys on the inside of the banks who took our profession really seriously, who were just as frustrated by the the evolution of the banks towards this this sort of algorithmic computer decisioning as what the customers were on the outside. So, absolutely, you, you will never get a computer says no response from a from a banker at Judo. We're talking about funding business growth today and banks become a really critical part of that relationship. There are also some horror stories where things don't go well. Um, Can you just sort of share your experience with how throughout your banking career, the bank has really supported businesses or maybe at times has failed businesses? Yeah, so so I think that the banking story has been one that's been evolving over the last 20 or 30 years, I suppose, with the, with the advent of, um, you know, c- computer decisioning, as we mentioned, but also I think 
um, what's happened concurrently with that is this this obsession that banks have had with driving down expenses, and what that has meant to a large extent has been the de-skilling of the frontline banker, who has now become um, more focused on the sales metric than he has on the on the customer problem. And and in the absence of a banker who's adequately able to re- represent their customer in front of whatever decision making process that bank has, whether it's a computer algorithm or one of the you know the mythical credit managers that customers never seem to get the opportunity <laughs> to meet, um, you have a system that's been sort of become more and more commoditized and more and more dehumanized, and the frontline relationship force that has become less and less um, sort of qualified to represent the customer in those circumstances. And so the, those two things coming together have led to some really horrendous customer outcomes, I think, and some some hugely frustrated um, customer circumstances where, and I'm sure this will be a, um, a common story for a lot of your listeners, where for whatever reason, the customer trips over one of the, you know, the, the series of questions that you tend to get asked by the, the major banks, whether it be a tax arrears, whether it's a, you know, a wrinkle in your credit history, whether it's you don't have two consecutive years of profitable trading for a really good reason, or whether you don't have residential security underpinning the, the transaction. But fundamentally, there's a really great business um, operated by a really great business operator um, that in years gone by would have been... Um, a completely bankable proposition, but in, in this day and age, for um, all the reasons we've mentioned, customers completely struggle. Can you tell us a story of, well, since you've joined Judo, what's been one of the great customer stories you've held where Judo's sort of matched the type of funding that you can give to the need of the business? Yeah, so so I think, um, and this is one that's been um, really close to my heart throughout my career, um, and we've, we've talked about it. In other forums, David, but but the issue of succession planning to me is one that um, you know is is just becoming a really critical aspect of you know what the Australian business landscape looks like. We we still have an enormous amount of business value that's tied up um, with the baby boomers, and the baby boomers are approaching the time in their lives where they would like to transition that wealth um, to the next generation. And what we've seen is banks completely sort of, you know, unhelpful in in the customer aspiration to transition that wealth. And I think, you know, one of the deals I'm most proud of that we've we've completed at Judo is a succession planning transaction where we're able to lean on the goodwill of the business to facilitate an orderly transition of business wealth from one generation to the next. And what that means and what that meant in this particular circumstance was that we had the exiting business owner who didn't lob up on our doorstep the day he wanted to exit the business as you shouldn't and as all good advisors would recommend against. They approached us to transition the wealth over, over a three-year period. The acquiring party in this case didn't have you know, residential property values sufficient to cover the, the amount of debt they were looking to take on to facilitate the business purchase. And so we were able to lean on the goodwill of the business, understanding that the um, the existing proprietor was going to um, facilitate the transaction over over three years, as we said, was going to remain in the business, transition all the relationships. And so we were able to take quite quite an aggressive position in, in modern day finance terms. But we quite comfortable given the quality of the people involved, the fact that the principal dependency is largely being dealt with by the exiting partner staying involved and the, the caliber of um, the people entering. And it's an amazing story to hear you funding that huge part that's needed in the Australian story and that sort of, it's not really the tail end of the business though because often 
at succession, new management, new owners come in, it's an it's another growth point, isn't it? Absolutely. It can be a, a point of you know, inflection for a business in a risk sense as well. And that's a critical thing to consider for the, the people exiting and the people entering. But as you say, it's also a huge um, area of opportunity where with the injection of fresh ideas and I think what has been missing from this dynamic definitely over the last 10 years has been the availability of liquidity that enables new partners um, to enter the business. Um, generally, people are capped at the value of at the value of their home in terms of their borrowing capacity. And I think um, what we want to unlock is you know the value of Australian businesses. Um, we also need to have an, a, you know a deep understanding of w- w- the risks inherent in them. But th- that in itself has has become a dying art. Frankie, thank you very much for coming and spending some time with us in the Financial Mentor. A lot of business owners listening out there. Do you have any final messages? No, so I just think we acknowledge as bankers the finance industry has probably let the small business community down over the last 10 to 20 years. It's it's what we're at Judo really passionate about, giving small business owners a fair go, recognising the incredible work they do as part of the Australian economy and the role that finance plays in, in unleashing that potential. And so we're really excited by what we're doing and we'd be more than happy to speak to any of your listeners or any of your listeners' friends about what that might mean. Thanks, Frank. Thanks, David. I'm joined here with Trey Zagante from Venture Tech Group. We're sitting here at the YBF Ventures co-working space again who have arranged this introduction for us. Thanks very much for coming on The Financial Mentor. Great. Thanks for having me here. You're a fascinating guy because you've done a lot of stuff. Innovation isn't just talk for you. For all of the headlines, when our show title is Lifting the Lid on Business, you are a man who stands out from the white noise of innovation and tech adoption and digital disruption. Can you tell us a little bit about your background? Yeah, sure. So um, uh, so I've worked across finance and strategy for most of my career. I was part of a founding team that brought the first China-based IT outsourcing company to the Australian market. Um, So we, in three and a half years, grew from a team of five of us to 150 based in Australia, and that was organic growth. Uh, We made an acquisition that uh, added another 100 staff um, to our business, and we then went through a global merger, a privatization, our local business was uh, what was acquired. So there's probably like five MBA case studies they crammed into about five years. Um, uh, so that was uh, my previous experience before uh, founding VentureTech. Let's talk about the, the as-is situation for business right now. So you talk about the VUCA environment. Uh, the environment is volatile, uncertain, complex and ambiguous. And your clients are predominantly ASX 20 clients, but this environment is felt by family businesses going through generational change, businesses just trying to find better ways to do things and finding the time to do it. What is the VUCA environment? Yeah, so I love the term VUCA and um, I, unfortunately I didn't come up with it. Uh, there, there's a, a bunch of uh, Harvard Business Review articles about VUCA going back to the early 2000s, um, but actually the term VUCA uh, came out of West Point Military Academy and um, that was back in the late 80s. So you know, US Army is looking at how does this 
you know, increasingly more volatile, uncertain, complex and ambiguous world impact us as, uh, you know, as a fighting organisation. Um, and, you know, that, that's absolutely the environment that, um, that we're all, uh, you know, operating in now. Um, you know, changes in, in markets, uh, changes in customer demands, changes in technology. How do we keep up with that uh, pace of change? And, um, yeah, the, the work that we do, you know, a lot of it is really focused on, uh, on large corporates. Um, that's where we have the, the maximum impact. But Absolutely, um, you know, smaller businesses are feeling that, and you know, we as a small consulting firm, um, you know, we need to operate in that environment and adapt to those changes as well. So VUCA is essentially that final scene in Tom Cruise in Top Gun as Maverick. That was a, a, a VUCA environment. It did come out of West Point, so it's obviously a very relevant uh, example that he would have gone through. But but what you've said though is still, I could read about this online. What does this mean day to day inside a business? What do I do about it? Sure. Uh, look, to us, the, the challenge is how do you become a future-ready organisation, right? So in the envi- environment of VUCA, how do we, you know, how do we stay in business? Uh, and, you know, to, to use a cliche, how do we, you know, not just survive but thrive in that changing environment? Um, so, so the way that we define a future-ready organisation is one that's adaptable. So, of course, you know, we have to adapt to, uh, to, to all these changes. I mean, that's just evolutionary stuff. And I think, you know, a lot of, um, uh, you know, most businesses are struggling with that. Uh, how do we be agile. So how do we have speed and agility in the way that we adapt to those changes? Um, and again, you know, you'll hear a lot of large organisations talking about, you know, we want to be agile the way that little startups are. Um, and again, I think you know, a lot of, um, you know, small, medium-sized businesses kind of get lost in the mix of, um, of that discussion as well. The um, the other uh, attribute of a future-ready organisation for us is uh, you know, one that's customer-centric. And I think that's where you know, a lot of uh, small, medium businesses and a lot of family businesses really have that advantage because of their size. They're, they're typically closer to their customers. So, so that should um, you know, be one of the advantages that, uh, that they can tap into. And then uh, lastly, you know, organisations need to be innovative. And for us, it's about you know, constantly going out and searching for opportunities to create new value. And that new value can either be, um, you know, new products and services, new processes. So how can we do things, um, you know, better, cheaper, faster? Finding new business models um, and you know, creating new customer experiences. Two exciting parts for me out of that is, is creating exciting customer experiences and finding new business models. But on the customer experience front, and customer experience is a bit of a modern phenomenon. We have an embarrassing situation in Australia this year where, where banks were told by a royal commission that they need to become more customer focus and you think how did that ever not happen but customer experience the way from start to finish that somebody engages with your business to me is new how do you go about improving that and even have the awareness of what it is yeah, and it really comes down to to a mindset, and this is from uh, from, from the leadership within an organisation all the way through to, yeah, and, and most importantly, frontline staff. Um, it's really putting the customer at the centre of everything that you do. Um, so, so when we talk about customer experiences, you know, reducing friction and pain points in the process and all those touch points that customers have with uh, with, with our organisations is absolutely critical. You know, I'm, I'm going through an insurance claim process at the moment. And, um, you know, if I was to, to map out 
um, that that process and all the pain points like that that, that will take me weeks to uh, to do. And I think a lot of us have um, you know as consumers of um, whether it's uh, you know telcos or utilities or, uh, or banks, um, you know we've all experienced those kind of, kinds of pains. Um, but you know a lot of it really comes down to having you know that mindset and the culture within organisations that hey customer feedback um, and customer interaction is something that, that we should be happy about. Customer feedback should not equal complaint in our, in our minds. Um, and a lot of organisations really struggle to, um, you know, to, to, to change that thinking. Customers have the best answers for you. I think it's absolutely fascinating. You work in Europe a little bit, in Southeast Asia, predominantly in Australia. Do you have a future vision for what business looks like in Australia? And that is a question without notice. So let's see how we navigate through this one. Look, I think that the future of, of business in Australia is an interesting one. I mean, we're, we are a large enough market that, um, you know, a, a lot of us, uh, you know, just uh, have this kind of insular mindset that we can be, you know, relatively successful in the Australian market and not look sort of outside of our borders. Um, where some of the huge opportunities are is, of course, uh, when we go global. Um, now, a lot of startups specifically talk about, you know, being global from day one, and you've seen some of the ex- uh, successes like, you know, of course, Atlassian, um, who, who had that mindset, you know, their first customers were um, uh, were overseas and, you know, they are a global brand um, and you wouldn't have reached the, the, the amount of um, uh, success and scale uh, had they just had a local mindset. Uh, I think where, you know, where, where it becomes tricky is looking at, you know, this kind of regional aspect, uh, you know, working uh, across, you know, the Asia-Pac region, you know, seeing the opportunities in, in different markets, particularly China, uh, you know, a lot of organisations go, okay, we, we should be using our regional, um, you know, position as an advantage and tapping into these markets. But, um, you know, firstly, Asia is not, you know, a single market. Um, uh, you know, if you're operating across, you know, China and Japan um, and Korea, they're very, very different. Southeast Asia is, of course, uh, you know, very different as well. So, you know, there, there's a lot of complexity there. I think a lot of it comes down to the individual um, businesses and their, uh, their their industry sector to see where some of those competitive advantages might be. But, yeah, it's a, it's a tricky one. Our listeners out there are all trying to grow their businesses. We're just about to run out of time. What's your number one tip somebody should do to grow their business? Have that growth mindset. Um, I think a lot of, uh, particularly a lot of business owners, um, you know, whilst we're we're entrepreneurial and we take risk in in setting up a business, uh, you know, once we achieve a certain level of success, um, I think a lot of us, you know, really trying to hold on to to, to that success. Um, so maintaining that growth mindset, um, uh, maintaining, uh, you know, that entrepreneurial spirit, I think is absolutely important. Um, and that, you know, that, that needs to flow through um, the, the generations as well. So, you know, as we start looking at um, succession planning and um, and the like with, within family businesses, um, making sure that um, we, we're setting up for success for, for the future. I actually do have one final question. You're, you said that you're a strategy finance guy. What does that mean? What, what is the role of finance in growing businesses? Yeah, so, I mean, to me, it really comes down to resource allocation. Um, so where do we allocate resources to, A, to really capitalise um, on opportunities? So, again, having that growth mindset. Um, but also, you know, how can we 
de-risk our, our investments. And um, you know, this is a lot of the work that we do with large organisations around where can they invest um, in you know, new innovation, um, invest in new technologies, invest in uh, potentially new business models, but do it in a way where um, they're trying to de-risk and really validate a lot of those risky assumptions that they have um, you know, in, in any business case. Thanks very much for your time. Great, thank you. The Financial Mentor with David Boyer.